I wept at the base of his statue in Rome. At 30, he was a god with an empire stretching across the known world. Julius Caesar, 48 BC. Hello, I'm Andrew, and I want to welcome you to Visions of the Past, a podcast all about the lore of Assassin's Creed. This is episode 91, and today we're going to take a look at how Alexander the Great and his conquests can fit into the current lore as a main game in Assassin's Creed. But this isn't something that we can do alone. Today, we're joined by the founder of the Codex, Reno. Hello there, Reno. How are you today? Hey, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to be able to to sit down and have this conversation today. It's my pleasure. So, Alexander the Great. He was born around July 20th of... 356 BC in Macedonia. So that takes us back farther than, not even as far as we saw in or in Odyssey, right? Yes. And so we have this opportunity with Alexander the Great to bridge origins and Odyssey. Yeah, I believe it's, there's still room to include um, the story, the established story about Eltani, or the small excerpts of her life that we know within the lore of Assassin's Creed, um, despite what Origins did with the lore. So it can, there is a way to um, explain away the the inconsistencies, and I and I feel like uh, the franchise shouldn't just stop at Odyssey as the farthest we can go back in the past. I agree, but I also think that there's a point where we can go too far and start losing the mystery of the birth of the human race, so to speak. But you, you mentioned Eltani, and you're right. There is very little known about her in the lore. I mean, we don't know how old she was. We know that she she was determined to end Alexander's life. She tracked him to Herat. And ended up poisoning him in, was it Babylon that she poisoned him in? Yeah. So you can follow her. You could follow, well, anyone in her group. Uh, when she was introduced, we thought that was uh, an early member, uh, early, what's the term I'm looking for? We thought she was- uh, Ancient history? Yeah. Well, I was thinking of like the right, the- Templars are the right of the Templar order, but she led a group of assassins for lack of a better term, based on what we know of her. And she could have followers. We don't, we don't know anything about her. Not really. Just that she killed Alexander the great. Yeah. That's basically, we only know, uh, we only know a, a small specific set of details about her, but yeah, that's about it. And I feel like, she has so much potential to be a protagonist for an Assassin's Creed game, especially with the um, uh, the total lack, or let's say that for how little female protagonists as main characters there are in Assassin's Creed, um, even with Odyssey and uh, Valhalla introducing Cassandra and Eivor, they were still like an optional skin. But like as an established character, we could have had Ultani even instead of Bayek as a first assassin or as an er very early assassin in the shape and form that we know along with Darius because 
I was at first surprised that they introduced Bayek and Aya. Uh, I mean, Aya was established before, so I was surprised they made the game all about Bayek, uh, and they sort of just retconned everything before Bayek, or seemingly done so. Uh, when they already have Amunet and they have um, Eltani established before. So I feel like there's already a, a precedence for them to exist. So why not make a full game about them? And and now even though the damage is already done with Origins, I feel like there's still room to tell a story about Eltani and expand upon the details. Uh, they even shed more about her through the, through um, Arbaz Mir, the, um, the assassin from India. Was that in Chronicles or was that in his comic? Uh, in Chronicles. I haven't played that one yet. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what we could get from a game with Eltani as our lead, you can flesh out her brotherhood. You can flesh out the Babylonian civilization. Mm. Let's say, for in theory, that she chased Alexander from Macedonia to her, the end of his empire. His empire at that time, at its height, was had so much land mass that it right now would be in between the land mass of India and Australia by size, by land. Yeah. <laughs> You're looking at the full map of Origins, the full map of Odyssey, all of the maps of Assassin's Creed 1, all of that in one game, plus some, if they covered the whole empire, which, in my opinion, is a, a little much. To be honest, I feel like it's a great thing that the empire is big. Uh, I mean, as a, as an idea to have a game that big, but judging by the, preview, the, the last few Assassin's Creed games, they sort of just kept getting bigger and bigger, but there's so much emptiness in between. I mean, I really appreciate the negative space in uh in origins like the Qatar depression and the black desert and these very large open empty areas but with odyssey and uh, valhalla i feel like there's just too much horseback riding between one place and another and not much of a variety in between i mean i appreciate the art style but still i think the if we have few cities like ac1 that are more detailed and taller in structures with um, uh, much higher visual fidelity and room for true parkour and platforming uh, and much more variety, that would be a lot better than just having too much size for the sake of it. Especially when most of the time the stories don't really take you that far and so much of that is just left for collectibles and, um, and just riding back and forth. Like you have one point here and one point there and you just kind of ride for like 10 minutes in between without really having any reasons to do anything or any real variety or difference that makes you want to go to explore it, you know? Yeah, because really all you have is a dot on the map and hunting. And that's about it when it comes to Valhalla. With Odyssey, their map was so full of, for lack of a better term, junk. Copy and pasted, well, at least what it felt like. Forts and outposts just to tick a check mark on your box with yep. if you took your thought of just giving us cities that takes us back to essentially what assassin's creed unity was a beautiful city with full of people 
and a good parkour system. What if it was me doing that? I would add Geyser, Babylon, uh, Ephestus, Olympia, and Heliconarsis. Because during Alexander's time, each of those cities held five of the seven ancient wonders of the world. They could recreate these things in stunning fidelity and just make it, if you want a historical tourism game, there you go. That's what you're doing. You're climbing the Temple of Artemis, the Statue of Zeus, in the Hanging Gardens. It would be a beautiful game. Even if they try and do something like uh, like uh, Valhalla, where maybe the, the base game, I mean, especially with the reports about uh, Infinity, uh, the next Assassin's Creed project, uh, being sort of a service where they keep uh, they keep seeding new locations into the game or more expansions. Uh, maybe they could start with a game that is set in that period, but focused completely on uh, on Mesopotamia, ancient Iraq, the Babylonian the Babylonian civilization, and they do it in great detail and they tell the story there. But then you have uh, kind of like AC Brotherhood, where it's all in Rome. But this is not going to be just one city. It's going to be like a, a country or like the um, uh, wherever the civilization spanned within the region known as modern day Iraq today. Uh, but then you could travel like when Ezio traveled to Spain to follow um, to go after Cesare. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then they could add more, maybe like an expansion where Eltani would go to the other cities you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, there there are ways, especially within the structure that we believe Infinity is going to be of just saying, well, here's a city with a eight to 10 hour story. Enjoy. In three months, here's another city with eight to 10 hours of story and focus it on Eltani. And then if you wanted to bring in a little bit of modern day, you throw in that Isu history side, that Babylonian mythology that could really expand on it. Yeah. And I, I'm not a historian on any level. So when thinking Babylonian mythology, I don't know a lot, but I do know that their creation myth is different than other mythologies. Yeah. And what I I've been seeing in previous games it seems to me that a lot of creation mythologies are turning into project anthropos. Uh I guess yeah. Well, it's what it seems like based on if we take the Fate of Atlantis DLC as true canon, like everything we see in there even though I am dubious of its canonicity because of it being a simulation in a simulation and how trustworthy Aletheia is. Yeah. But if you take that as being the true creation project for humans, we get a little support of it in Valhalla within uh, Jotunheim Mm -hmm. and the naming of the Demiurge as the, the father of understanding, the sacred voice and the mother of wisdom. Yeah. And we also have it in the in the trans uh, the translations of the Isu uh, language that is found on the on the, on the uh, manuscripts. Yep. Uh, in Valhalla, when we meet Folka, 
when you read them in present day, there is confirmation of Project Anthropos. So, I mean, Aletheia is pretty much untrustworthy because she basically played everyone along with Basim, Loki, and that's kind of evident in Valhalla. But then again, whatever we knew about Project Anthropos, there's at least enough truth uh, for uh, enough truth in it that we have it in Valhalla, written in Isu language. And then you see enough of the origin of the Sky Lady, the the Iroquois myth of creation, mm. to make it sound to me that it worked a lot like Minerva and Juno and and uh, Jupiter's triad where they had a whole bunch of temples send them information and they tested it so it seems like the sky woman was over in north america creating humans and then other mythologies were creating humans and then they would send it to um the demiurge for then the only one i remember is is it samuel samuel yeah samuel and you could very easily say well all these creation myths are truth because the isu in this area did it and then the isu in that area did it and that's how we have different races with different skin colors different languages and and that kind of thing yeah 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 i mean i mean it could have been different uh prepositions for a project and different nations in the isu made their own prepositions and then whatever that's left from these ideas could have inspired the local mythologies of the region, or it's just human cultures, I know, like uh, reinterpreting the facts uh, across time, and then facts become fiction, and they become legend, and yeah, so legend and myth. the truth yep. gets lost, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's ways to tie those in and to tie in um, other Babylonian myths especially since we know Bassam is on the hunt for Loki's children and we don't know where they were put in the world. We only know that Odin had them uh, caged, for lack of a better term, in a different place than Europe. So it yeah. very easily could be where he was holding Hel or Jorgmander or Fenris. Mm. So it very easily could do a modern day story tying into Babylonian mythology. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there's this one thing that I always wonder about. It's, um, I don't know if you remember uh, the Fields of Elysium in uh, Odyssey. Mm -hmm. um, if, I, I, I did discuss this in a video briefly before, but basically you have, uh, when you look at the sky, and this is a total, like, uh, speculation on my end. There's like there is little to support this beside uh, an artistic choice of design. You know, um, when you look in the into the sky when you're playing uh, in Elysium, you can see some sort of gas giant in the sky, like a planet that doesn't look like the moon. It looks more like Jupiter. Like it's a it's a gas giant in the background. This kind of made me think, and this is something I've been thinking about since Assassin's Creed 3, what if the Isu did, in fact, leave Earth? Or at least some of them. I mean, imagine if this a catastrophe similar to Toba happening today. You could have some billionaire go into space, maybe. Or you could have others dig up some sort of bunker beneath the ground and they could survive it. It doesn't have to be some 
government authorized project or universally agreed upon solution, but it could be just different people in a earth spanning civilization trying different things. So I always wondered for so many people, the salute, the six solutions might have not worked, but some of them could have gone to space and this Elysium uh, simula- simulation uh, it would show you that there is a gas giant in the sky, which makes me think, what if they actually this Elysium and the simulation reflects some sort of spaceship or some sort of uh, space colony elsewhere? And if you think about it, Elysium is like a paradise and religions kind of view uh, when someone goes to heaven, they go into the cloud, they go to the sky, they go near God, you know? So what if this was actually traveling to space so they can find survival and a better life. And if we're talking about Mesopotamian mythology, there is a story of the Anunnaki, uh, which are a race uh, like the, the gods leaving to space and then coming back to Earth in a specific... This is, of course, a topic of uh, ancient astronaut theories, which is the basis for the Isu mythology, except that the Isu are not from space, but from Earth. But there's so much about the Isu mythology that is inspired by uh, ancient astronaut theories, like the pyramids being, uh, instead of a spaceship being uh, something constructed by the Isu or other historical sites, or they're uh, covering some site beneath them and the ancient technology and everything. So uh, I I would say that if they want to bring up the idea of the Anunnaki being Isu who went to space, and now they're coming back to Earth, or maybe they could at some point come back to earth to establish a rule. I mean, who knows? And uh, uh, yeah, I was, uh, so there's another thing I want to add too, is that in, um, uh, in Indian mythology, there's the story of the Vimana, which is literally a flying spaceship or a flying city. So just like we have the Isu in, um, you have, you have Durga and, um, an ancient uh, um, uh, Isu member, uh, also from Indian mythology. Uh, she's, um, I would say that there's place for Vimana uh, to be part of the lore at some point. Maybe this is the spaceship that the Anunnaki would take and go into space and maybe establish some colony on another planet. Whether they plan to come back or not just remains to be seen, but... Yeah, I, I would say this is also something that is referenced in, in Babylon, Mesopotamian, and Indian mythology. Well, that is something I didn't think about. Correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't there a very obscure place where there is somewhere in the lore something about a race of humanoids before the Isu? The Nephilim? Uh, maybe. The Nephilim are actually the reference to the hybrids of Isu and uh, the the reference to the Isu. Their reference uh, in, in Valhalla, there is um, I don't think there is ever any mention of something before the Isu. Okay. Other than that, they came before us. But the mention of the Nephilim in, in uh, Christianity, it's um, through Brendan Standing Stones. Yeah. Yeah, I I did a podcast on him. Oh, goodness, it had to have been in December or January. And I always took the Nephilim as his interpretation of the Isu themselves. Yeah, yeah. I also never really looked at that skyline in 
Elysium. I I always took it as just the sun. So I think I'm going to have to look at that again. I think it's in the in the promotional artwork for it. Okay. Like there is a promotional artwork that shows um, those ge- portals that you teleport in, and then there is a mountain and there is a uh, structure. But then when you look in the sky, there is like a, a a gas giant sort of thing flying in the sky. Like it could be just a stylistic a style choice, uh, uh, like something to make it feel otherworldly. It could be Alethea just romanticizing their world and the simulation that she designed. But then again, I feel like there's there's room to include the idea that a civilization that managed to create sentient beings is also capable of space travel. And at least a few billionaires of them could have afforded travel there, you know? Oh, absolutely. If if they can if they can put temples together that hold artifacts that hold the world together. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure they can go to space. Yeah, I mean, here we have Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos trying to go into space. <laughs> so surely the East to have some of those, right? <laughs> I would think so. Yeah, I would think so. Maybe not necessarily the the ones running the sp- experiments or the civilization from a leadership standpoint. Yeah. But definitely someone from a um I guess a merchant standpoint that would probably have enough money to um hoard pieces of Eden because if we're looking at well not just how many pieces of Eden we know about there is numerous things within mythology that could be taken as pieces of Eden so it to see an idea of a spaceship it wouldn't surprise me well I guess that's not necessarily true I'd be surprised to see it but I'd be acceptable of it because of everything that we've seen yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's room for so much more if they're willing to give thought to it. Uh, there is room for these things to work in the lore, but only if they think about it beyond the constraint of just one game. Yeah, like one of the best parts about the lore in the early games is that every game took the previous game's lore into so much consideration that it felt like a TV show episode, like one episode after another, building up to something great and yeah there were some things that were added with each new game but everything worked harmoniously together um and i'd love to see the same thing happening from now on but what i've been noticing is that every new game seems to be this particular dev team's take on the brand name or their very own story told in isolation of everything that came before and after although um i'm really glad that um uh, Darby McDevitt did a wonderful job in bringing everything together, like things from Brotherhood and Three and Revelations and um, so much more. You know, like they, they, he brought them all together so neatly in Valhalla. But yeah, I'd love to see the same thing happening in the next games. And if they're to introduce any of this stuff, I'd want them more than just an excuse for the mythology of the region we're in. I totally agree, and I, I agree with you that Darby left uh, Valhalla in such a place that we could go anywhere, and that's kind of one of my favorite things about what we've heard about Infinity. They combined the Montreal and the Toronto teams, and they're more unified than what they were before, so hopefully that they can build on the narrative and the story and be able to make Infinity coherent and not go oh, well, we have this character that's 2,000 years old and we're never going to mention her again. 
Exactly. So I'm, I'm hopeful to see that. I, I really am. And when we talk about something like the lore and Alexander in specifics, he had two pieces of Eden through his life. He had the, the staff that he was buried with, and he had the trident of Eden. Mm. So if we go back to talking about Eltani and her assassination of, of uh, Alexander, if she's doing it for those two pieces, she messed up. She didn't get anything out of it. Yeah. Because Alexander was buried with the staff and, and then the trident was broken up into three with uh, Seleucus taking a fear prong, uh, Ptolemy taking the faith prong, and then the devotion prong going back to someone in Macedonia. Yeah. If she was doing it from a, I know he's got a special artifact, I need to keep these artifacts out of the hands of uh, the Templars at the time, she failed. And I'd like to see the story behind that. I'd like to see the story behind his death. Yeah, I mean, when when you, when you put it that way, I feel like it makes something that um, some sort of recurring theme in the Assassin's Creed franchise, although it's kind of um, not very focused on recently, which is that um, each individual character does things that feel significant in their time. But once you move past that era, so much happens that basically um, undoes everything that they do. Yep. I, I can't name how many times in the first, oh, probably up till Unity or maybe even Syndicate, where some Templar has said to an assassin, all these victories that you've won, what does it amount to? Where are you now? Yeah. So, like, if she if her only goal was to stop Macedonian expansion, she did great. But if she was trying to get the staff or the trident, she failed. I do kind of think I I have this wondering about Alexander. I have read in past and that he had heterochromia. Yeah. If you created him being a sage on the line of Oh, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, and that makes me feel bad. Aita? Yes. Because the only sage that we don't see with heterochromia in his line was Jacques de Molay. Mm. And that's easily explained by that video being scrubbed by Abstergo. Yeah. Because you don't want people to know things like that. Though, in honesty, it was probably just an oversight. Mm. But... Speaking of oversight, Alexander had such a control over how he was portrayed in statues and art. You very easily could say that he had heterochromia, but nobody outside his inner circle really knew. So you could really turn that on to a story with him having issues with the Isu side and tying that into the Babylonian mythology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... I really love the way they they introduced one of my most favorite things about Valhalla, uh, beside Basim's story and him jumping into present day, is the idea of the the sages program basically, or let's say the reincarnations through the need. Um, th- th- this puts some topic that felt rather like a one case scenario, which is Aita, 
and it made it out to be something that several ISU managed, managed to use. And um, I wouldn't know if there are others who also utilize the technology or not, because uh, Juno gave the tech, helped uh, Odin get the technology, and she did it for her husband. Her husband wasn't there, so maybe she gave it to others. Maybe other people also gave it to others. So, and and even within the same uh, nine that we have in um, in the Yggdrasil room, uh, shown in the ancient memory, you could have. Um, one of these people reincarnate into Alexander the Great or basically anyone else. And, and that would answer the one question that I have had after seeing that is do those uh, members of the Isu that use Yidrasil, do they only reincarnate once? I don't think they incarnate once. Do they reincarnate multiple times? Because it's one of those things where you, you don't know for sure. Yeah. But we know for sure Aita did. And we saw that right away when they when sages were introduced because we saw it in Bartholomew Roberts and we saw it in John Standish. Yeah. And and with uh, Elijah Miles. Yep. Oh man, I Elijah is I got so many thoughts on how to use him to remake every game up to like Unity. Yeah. <laughs> I mean <laughs> Because he's he's also got the Kui Nor tying it back into Egyptian mythology. Or not Egyptian, Indian, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh so yeah. You can use him, and I did a podcast when I did a, my podcast on him a while ago, I brought this up. You could use him to relive Altair's memories, looking for something outside of uh the piece of Eden that he got from Robert. Yeah. And possibly trying to find someone or something else outside of those. I think it was like 35 years, something like that, between the point where Altair was born and Seth was born. Yeah. So you could really use him to do that and even like bring back the glyph puzzles. But instead of saying it's from clay, it's a fragmentation of the Aida DNA. Yeah. So there's just so much that they could do with that character. And I understand them not bringing him back yet because at this point he's not even 18 yet. Yeah. And that's pushing it for, I, I almost want to call him a murder hobo, <laughs> but that's something that's just, it's just kind of one of those things where it's too young. And I know a lot of people will go, but what about Rattagahetan? You don't realize that the first time you play him, he's four yeah, or that he's 14 or 17 when he kills those soldiers at the, uh, when he goes to meet Achilles, he doesn't look that old. Yeah. And I think with the way games are today, you can't get away with that. I guess. Yeah. And, and I, I'd say that giving him more time, uh, would I feel like the present day story being tied to our real life uh, timeline is a little bit pointless. Like I never understood why every game had to date the present day to be the same year the game is released. Like why not? Why can't we have modern day in twenty twenty five or twenty thirty or twenty fifty? Uh, the Assassin's Creed history is an ongoing thing, and I I feel that if they give it a more fictional period 
they could have room to innovate more with things. Like they could have technology that we don't have. They could have some more interesting affairs going on. Like uh, if the present day becomes some sort of, not really cyberpunk future, but if it's set in 2030, for example, with an older Elijah, and then you kind of watch him grow with Abstergo becoming more of a corporate government type of thing. This would make the present day have more room for actual gameplay, you know, rather than just being in an office or in an apartment building or a hideout, you know? Kind of lean it towards what we see in Watch Dogs Legion. Yeah, but I'd say further, yeah. But not necessarily go so far with the way the technology is and how it's so overabundant? I guess so. If, If we try to keep it realistic, I don't see that technology as soon as watchdogs legion does because the bloodline dlc really dated it with the uh, age of jackson yeah but that's that's a whole nother that's a whole nother story so there's a bunch of story here uh with infinity and the way you're going back and forth i would love to see kind of splitting of the modern day you take uh bassam playing some sequences to where he's learning about where his son is. And you take Elijah learning about how to stop Basim because I feel that Aletheia and Basim are more than just wanting to put their family back together. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they survived that long just to put, put their family back together. But at the same time, I don't see Basim as a villain. I mean... I know this is kind of a controversial opinion because he caused the death of Layla indirectly or yeah, he basically lied to her so she would die, you know, and he could get out. But I would say that um, him and Juno aren't exactly um, the type who would just want genocide for the sake of genocide or even want genocide. They uh, Basim was treated really badly by the caste system of the Isu. So he grew some resentment towards them. They basically ostracized him and his wife, him for being a hybrid and his wife for being from a different caste. And their kid died because of uh, their kid was, um, you know, the the way things happened with him until his death. And then um, his wife, who was apparently denied treatment until she died and he transferred her to the staff. So he was treated really badly by the Isu, and it's it stands to reason that he would want revenge on them. And now that he's living amongst humans, humans are basically like their pets at the time. Like, I know we don't see it that way, but to them, it's like if we created androids or if we had our pets rebel against us. So to him, humans are a means to an end. Uh, he seemed to share some respect towards Eivor when he saw her at the campfire in the end uh, and that secret ending scene that you see in the present day Uh, so I I wouldn't say that he hates all of humanity or he wants to hurt people because first he kind of joined the assassins when he became Basim like Loki being reborn as Basim so he joined the assassins because clearly something about him aligned, although it's kind of debatable when he got his awakening, but he was always Loki inside Basin's body. Um, like, apparently, so and when he was a mentor. So it didn't just happen overnight. But before that, um, I, I wouldn't know when he 
uh, like became aware that he's a, a reincarnation of Loki. So he still chose to be with the assassins until a point. And now in the present day, he wants to meet up with the assassin mentor. So he wants to assassinate him or he wants to use the assassins to fight the Templars, like he says, or this is just another lie. So I'm curious to see him because to me, he's more of a great, morally great character than he's a villain. And I wouldn't want him to be painted black and white. I I can see where you're coming from. I've always, I, I won't necessarily say always, seen him and Aletheia as villains, but they are absolutely morally complex based on what you had just said. And it really does come down to what does he want to do after meeting William? Why is a secure phone call not good enough? What is his motivation for wanting to attack the largest corporation in the world? Why does he want to go after Abstergo? Yeah. If throwing out a theory here, I think that's got more to do with them having more knowledge of where his children could be. Yeah. It just, it just something doesn't feel right, and but that's a sign of a good character. Yep. So it really does kind of come down to what does he want and what is he willing to do. Yeah, I I, I would say that um, him trying to um, be with uh, William Miles and the assassins and to go fight Abstergo. It's kind of an unusual decision because he could have just infiltrated the ranks of Abstergo and managed to use their technology to know where his kids are. But then again, he's now trying to join William Miles. Maybe he needs more power because he realizes he can't do it alone. But yeah, he clearly doesn't look like someone who's straightforward with his intentions. He's a pretty complex character and I really miss having such characters in games yep. and especially in Assassin's Creed. And I really hope they don't ruin his character like they did with Juno because they made Juno to be this um, genocidal maniac and she didn't feel that way in Assassin's Creed 3. I know she wanted to control the human race, and but then again, that wasn't any different from what the Templars are doing and like this is a struggle for power and what what she wants to do in the end kind of remained a mystery they wanted to rule but what's life gonna be anyway yeah Um, we we didn't really feel like she wanted to kill everything until oh the comic uprising yeah when she was shown to watch her father die at the hands of a human and where they showed that that's where she had all that hate but yeah, I, I prefer the morally complex. And it's one of those things with Bassam, I think, that if we know more about what Loki was like, what he lived through, mm. maybe we'll be more apt to trusting him. But it's very hard watching what Aletheia did to Cassandra and Layla to believe that she isn't more on the darker side of the morally gray. Yeah. I feel like since Assassin's Creed Valhalla is getting another set of content for next year, the best thing they can do is have Basim uh, use the Animus to uh, relive his life and memories 
back when he was still in, in Constantinople and in Iraq. That would be an incredible chapter. Yeah, that would be a great way to to do that. And there's that new um, that new novel coming out. That is is that a choose your own adventure novel? It seems like, and it's like an interactive novel. Yeah, that's so. I, I read that as choose your own adventure kind of thing. Mm. But we're also getting that Mosfelheim DLC. Yeah. So that's another great place to where we could see what is going on with him. Yeah, and and I wish to see. Uh, Muspelheim DLC show us more than just a fiery realm, but rather maybe um, another ancient memory, like the one that we saw with Yggdrasil, or maybe um, another Isu site that we could get to, because we didn't really see many of those in Valhalla. We only saw the Yggdrasil room, and the others were more or less a technology that we interacted with without real um meaning behind it like the the meteor thing that happened with the mastery oh yeah that room that we're still waiting to find out what's behind the mastery odin's eye yeah yeah there's there's a lot of unanswered questions right now with valhalla that i'm hopeful we get answers with and i just i hope that we get a lot of it with mosfelheim and i really do wish that they use Muspelheim to tie into the next setting uh, because we know that Asgard is essentially the Nordic countries. We know that Jotunheim is North America. And I'm hopeful that they show us without a shadow of a doubt, but we know there will be doubt because that's how they like to do. They want speculation to, to boost clicks and things like that. Okay. So let me stop you right there. If I may, um, because I wanted to discuss this before, and do you do you think that the nine realms really represent actual continents on Earth? I don't know if they necessarily do the whole continent, but I feel like they are places on Earth that are shifted through the Asgardian myth prism, mm. and we we see that with Odin going into the vault. That is clearly the, or at least in my my opinion, is clearly the Grand Temple in North America. Yeah. Because it's got all the information and Juno, uh, Juno makes a point that it's locked away in that temple. And we know that Minerva is looking through the eye and that was in uh, the Grand Temple as well. Yeah. So it, it feels to me that they're tied to at least a section of continents on earth. Yeah. Like maybe it's not the actual continent, but the actual um, sovereign nations that were established by the Isu or inhabited by them. Yeah. Yep. And then it's, it's shifted through that prism that through time, Eivor learned that, Oh, this place got really cold in winter. North America gets really cold mm. in and Asgard, they would think that, well, this is our home. This is the most beautiful place ever. So I could see them taking a desert area and saying that's Mosfelheim because it's hot all the time. Yeah. So meaning somewhere around the Middle East, perhaps? The only two places I can think with grand, vast, sprawling deserts are the Middle East and North Africa. Yeah. 
So could we be possibly seeing um, Eden there? Because Eden is speculated to be somewhere around Ethiopia based on the truth footage. So if we're going to see a, a hot realm, basically, as you speculated, uh, the, the, the center of the conflict could be um, Eden and the human uprising. And it makes sense because in Asgard, we've been talking about Ragnarok, and, and then uh, Ragnarok happened around the time the human rebellion was happening. And we didn't touch on the human rebellion. We hardly saw any humans in, um, in these, um, the mythical realms of Valhalla. So maybe in Muspelheim, we could see how Ragnarok happened, the world turned to fire, and how the rebellion happened, and eventually the fall and the, the, the Toba catastrophe. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. If they sent Muspelheim after what we saw in uh, the, in Basim's Truth, that could be anywhere because the whole Earth would have been on fire after the catastrophe. Yeah. That's a good point. It's definitely something to think about that I hadn't put that much thought in. It, it, it could... It could turn into an eye-opening experience that paves a way. And, and really, it could pave a way for Atani or Alexander because of that area of Alexander's empire. I guess, yeah. There, there's, there's so much room uh, for innovation in that regard, and I hope they make the most of it. Because most of the time, they kind of like... Um, like with all due respect to the actual narrative, but most of the time fan theories tend to be a lot more elaborate than the actual story. But I would really love to see these things we're talking about happening for real. Yeah. I I had some of that thought with before Valhalla going, Oh, we could get this, we could get that. And then uh, to be honest, more than half the game felt like filler. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, I, I, I can say I, I, I liked Valhalla a lot. I, it was, story-wise, it was the most fulfilling game since Revelations to me. Uh, but at the same time, gameplay-wise, I didn't think 70 hours of filler arcs, even though many of them were really great stories. But for us to see the modern day, in the prologue of the game, even before we see the title card of the game appear. And then we just have to wait until the last 45 minutes of the game to see something else. That was such a long wait, especially when the story in between hardly had anything to do with the assassins. I mean, the hidden ones, or it was mostly focused on kingdoms and alliances between kingdoms and Eivor growing as a person. Even the Animus Anomalies, which I really went out of my way to finish before anything else, uh, they were kind of like an op. They were amazing, like they were rewarding in the end. And I really liked the recording of Lo uh, Loki and Aletheia in between. But they were still an optional activity that I would have loved to see being more of a main quest than a side quest, you know? Yep. And the way the game, the, the game's overall structure, making the, so many stuff that are essential to be so optional and barely um, 
you you can easily miss out on them. Like you could play, you could miss out on so much of the 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 mythical realms and the animus anomalies, and then you would just uh, you would likely see the mythical realms, and then you finish the game without seeing the animus anomaly to know what's going on. And this is an issue that so many people appear to have, which is um, when they finish the anomalies, a glitch would not allow the cutscene to play. So many people couldn't even get there, and they were writing this to me on my lore analysis video. They were like, where did you get this information from, or how did you tie this into it? Or they saw the video, and they were like, when did this play? We didn't see that. So, and this is another issue, sorry, I don't want to... Um, I don't want to like disrupt the conversation, but I just want to add that I feel like the way the game ends in a non-consequential uh, way with the quest, without credits rolling, without a proper finale to it, makes the story feel rather volatile, even though there's a lot of uh, content in it and worthwhile lore stuff. But the fact that most of them is just optional and written in notes that most people will miss out on, and there's not even any conclusive act in the end you just kind of run out of quests that kind of turned me off yeah i agree with you uh, there was a lot of story i liked about valhalla but after 75 to 100 hours the gameplay was just so repetitive i <laughs> i i had yeah. i can't oh goodness i had to have been halfway through and i was almost maxed out and i was just running a couple spears and stopped adding points because it was just too easy the you're absolutely right about people like you and I who crave the lore. It's optional. These games have gone from the Assassin's Creed that we know 10 years ago to historical tourism. Yeah. With optional lore, optional modern modern day. And I, I get where that came from. They felt that there was a lot of complaints about the modern day, but it feels like and especially now with the transmedia initiative that we've seen for the next upcoming year or two, the games have gone from lore story based with some transmedia to historic tourism with lore transmedia. Yeah. And it's, it's fine. I don't mind reading the books. I'm rereading Assassin's Creed uh which one the one that's based on two i'm drawing a blank on the name of it um renaissance assassin's creed renaissance oh the, the novels yeah okay yeah i'm going through and i'm i have all of them but like the last two that i'm reading and they're good but for instance with the unity novel uh elisa's story would have fleshed her out so much better in the game instead of in the novel. Yeah. I love Hytham Kenway, but his story is all in Forsaken. Yeah. So it's, I hate to say it is what it is, but I'm hopeful that infinity comes in with this idea of at very least being a hub to where we can launch these novels launch these comics how many people were mad that juno died in uprising i bet everyone who actually cared about the present day was mad about that <laughs> <laughs> like i like the story i thought the story was good and i liked charlotte de la cruz but 
it felt underwhelming, like it wasn't being served to its fullest potential. Yep, I, I totally agree. Um, uh, when, when you're invested into a video game franchise, you would expect to have the most important narrative arcs to be tied in the games. And this is not, no offense to comics as a medium or books, because each of those is a, is a medium that has millions, if not billions of followers and admirers. And, and I'm a fan of some comics. I'm a fan of some books. But when you're, when you're a fan of a video game, you would want to continue the story in that same format, you know? And it's, imagine it like Avengers. Imagine having to see um, the ending of Avengers being put into a book. Or an important backstory put in a DLC that you have to pay extra to see. And I'm, I'm okay with getting a season pass. But the way it's done, it's, it's unfulfilling. Yep, it's like Star Wars saying Palpatine's back in a comic and then poof, he's right in your face in Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. So I guess I'm kind of fickle when it comes to that, but you kind of would expect that from a podcast that's about lore that's two years old or a, or a website that's seven, eight years old now? Yeah, six, six, six years old since 2014. We're, we're turning seven soon. Gotcha. So yeah, it's it's something that, I am confident that I can say you do as well, that we try, that we strive for, that keeps us coming back. I can remember when Unity launched and it had so much wrong with it, so many visual glitches, and I didn't like the combat. I thought it was too difficult, and I wasn't going to buy Syndicate, and I wasn't going to buy Syndicate. And then the day it released, I went, I'm going to go buy Syndicate. I can't keep it away. Yeah. So like when we see, for instance, all of this life of Alexander the Great, if we followed him in a game, there's a lot of story there. There's a lot of things that he did, a lot of places that he went, and there could be a great game built from a historical tourism part. Yeah. So we could see a lot of that. And but there is also a lot of lore already established from his death, carrying pieces of Eden, his final resting spot, that we could do that too. But if they gave us an Alexander game, is all of that going to be written off in, in a, uh, a note somewhere from Ptolemy or in some tablet that Itani is hiding in her bureau. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to add about the type of story we'd be getting, I feel like if we're ever going to have a story in, um, set in um, Mesopotamia, for example, and about Alexander the Great, I'd really would rather see it from the perspective of Altani herself or perhaps maybe not Altani's time, not Alexander the Great, but in Gilgamesh's time, Gilgamesh, who's speculated to be a sage himself. I'd love to see... Um, one of my issues with recent Assassin's Creed game is that they try to avoid going back to characters that we already know. And every time we tell a story about them, the story is told from the perspective of someone totally unrelated, and they just kind of 
meet with them somewhere throughout their lives. And it's something usually brief and underwhelming, like uh, Darius's story in Odyssey. Yeah, we see the story through his daughter-in-law or yeah. Amunet through her husband. Yeah. Or even with the Darius, whom Cassandra got in touch with. But to be honest, that wasn't the story I wanted to see about Darius. I wanted to see Darius at his height, not Darius trying to save his kid and trying to survive. This felt like a pretty irrelevant part of his life to tell. And even though if they want, wanted to make it about him, um, his kid being the father, uh, the father of Cassandra's kid, that um, who is also an ancestor to uh, Aya Amunet, it felt like unnecessary. Why do I need to know that Aya is related to Cassandra? Yeah, I felt that was forced too. Yeah, like it, it didn't need to, the, the the universe did have to be have to be that small, you know. Yep. Uh, there, uh, Aya didn't show any signs of having any extra sensory abilities or like a sixth sense or some we didn't play with her enough though uh, yeah well, we didn't play with her and there wasn't much story told about her that wanted that warranted an explanation in the next game as to how she's related to cassandra you know i mean it just yeah. felt like a, an easter egg to say hey it's still assassin's creed because it's connected yep yeah it, it was like a, a wink wink hush hush there's your lore kind of thing yeah not to mention how showing Egypt getting built 2,000 years after it was built, which I really yeah. don't know why they did that. I know maybe it's a stylistic choice, um, like an artistic choice, but it wasn't one that really worked there. And Yeah, the only way you can explain that is by saying it's just trying to show the passage of time. But you do that in the other way by showing Darius die. You show the kid growing up and the generations after him. Exactly. It just felt like they were using that little cutscene as a way to tie Aya into Cassandra and making you think, oh, maybe that's where the Magi learned how to do a leap of faith. Yep. And that was it. And it, it kind of tied in the hidden blade, which after seeing all that connection go, okay, so did Aya lie about how she got the hidden blade or was her family heirloom somehow taken to the Ptolemies? Exactly. And this is another issue, which is the ongoing, um, uh, yeah, not on, but the, the, how every game is so isolated from the other game. So we have a story about the what's supposedly an origin story for the Brotherhood, and you find Darius's hidden blade without Bayek having any knowledge of who Darius is, and it's introduced like it's a wink to the player. Oh, this is the first blade that you know from the lore, but the character doesn't think much of it. Yep. And then the next game would show you Darius and. It, it kind of shows that ne the teams weren't really in touch or the story wasn't written. Uh, the story was kind of written for the convenience of uh, what setting sells rather than how it makes sense in the overall story, which really bothers me, to be honest. Oh, I totally agree. Um, the only thing that was, I guess, even remotely decent about what Odyssey and Origins did was it showed how information gets lost over time. Yeah. 
because we see Bayek use the hidden blade wrong. We see in Assassin's Creed 2, his statue was wearing the hidden blade wrong. His, not even to mention his facial features are wrong. Amunet doesn't look like Aya in the statue. Uh, we find she's actually buried in the Egyptian desert, not in Venice, going, okay, so does that mean every tomb in Italy is empty? Yeah, this is this is one other thing that also bothered me. It's like, you don't need to make those changes. And maybe it's something I could blame on Assassin's Creed 2 as to why did you have to have tombs of all the assassins in one place? Like, there was no need to have assassins from different cultures all buried there. But then you could have explained that by showing that once upon a time, this place was the birthplace of the Brotherhood. But then Origins didn't yep. do that. Origins had literally a post credit scene and a DLC that had something to do with, uh, with the Origins. And I will admit that the one thing that I really do like about the way they set up where those tombs were, specifically in Ayas, that church that you find her in houses other artifacts from Alexandria. Yeah. So I thought that was a neat tie-in, but you need to know the history to know that. Yeah. So we could probably sit here and and pick out these things all night. <laughs> we, <laughs> Absolutely. We really could. <laughs> Once you start talking about Assassin's Creed, there is no stopping us. Uh, yeah. It, we, I, <laughs> we're, I'm, I'm going to peek behind the curtain here. I wrote three pages of notes and we touched on a quarter of it, maybe. Maybe, <laughs> but we've gone, we, we've, we've been sitting here for an hour and, uh, I think that's honestly all the time that we're going to have for tonight. We should probably do a season two or a volume two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to have, um, maybe, maybe we'll sit down and talk about how we could, uh, <laughs> remake Assassin's Creed or Assassin's Creed two using elijah because i think that might be fun i think i can have uh, some um insight on that because i've had my personal um visions for what could happen or what i wish would happen so yeah i would say i I have what i have something to say about that but yeah that's probably for another time i i think that is for another time and absolutely something we'll have to look look into doing yeah but I do have to ask our audience today, what do you think about what we've talked about today? Do you think uh, we're on the money with our thoughts on the lore and what's happened with the series and about seeing Alexander the Great or ancient Babylon in a main Assassin's Creed title? You can, of course, let me know over on Twitter at visions underscore AC. And where can everyone find you, Reno? Do you have anything that you want to promote? Um, I would say uh, the Codex Network on Twitter and the website, thecodex.network. And also you can reach me on my personal accounts at Rhino the Bouncer, as they're written, R-I-N-O-T-H-E-B-O-U-N-C-E-R, and my YouTube channel, basically. that If you want to ask any questions or follow more content, that's where I'm, where I'm at. That is perfect, and I hope... Uh... We have a lot of conversation coming out of this, and I want to thank you all for joining us today. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes. If you love stories about Assassin's Creed lore, please tell your friends and follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you want to help support this podcast and provide for new episodes, I'd love for you to buy me a cup of coffee at bit.ly forward slash visioncoffee. If you have any questions about Assassin's Creed or topics that you'd like me to cover, please feel free to hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at visions underscore AC, or you can check out my brand new TikTok at visions of the past podcast. And you can find those links in the show notes below. Until next time, my assassin friends, make sure to follow the creed. And to those Templars listening, may the father of understanding guide you.